This is the Macworld Podcast, episode 476 for September 30th, 2015. We're sponsored this week by Red Hat. Hi, folks, and welcome back to the Macworld Podcast. Another unexciting week in Mac. Oh, wait a minute. No, I can't even, I can never even say that anymore. Every Uh week in the world of Apple, there are new things to discuss uh, and even things breaking as we, uh, as we start this podcast. Well, let me introduce myself. I am senior contributor to Macworld, Glenn Fleischman, a familiar voice uh, on these airwaves, I hope. Susie Oaks is on assignment and, this and week. No, and, and I'm Susie Oaks. Hi, uh, Glenn. How's it going? How, how's the Jersey Shore, Susie? It's fantastic. <laughs> I got something in my throat yet. here. Yeah. Uh, yes. Well, uh. so that voice you hear is, in fact, proprietor of Six Colors, the master of many podcasts, Jason Snell. Hello. Hi, nice hello, to have Macworld you. Podcast. It's good Jason, to be back. You've been a busy boy, also a very, very, yes. very busy yes, boy. Yes, Macworld has been keeping busy this last uh, this last few days. In fact, so we're going to talk about some things you have written, some some yes. some little little assignments you've had for mm. Macworld about uh, two major things that have come out. And yeah. uh, El Capitan, uh, technically, well, we're recording this on a Tuesday, and the embargo dropped for yes. El Capitan, but it technically will ship and push out on Wednesday, ostensibly. Which is release day for El Capitan. Woohoo! Uh, and I'm excited about this release because it's so uneventful. It's the most exciting OS X mm-hmm. release in years for me where, because I have so little to worry about. Yeah, you know, I, I actually say in the review at the end, I was trying to figure out, you know, you write a review of something and Macworld uh, wanted, you know, again, I, I, I never have done the John Syracuse length kind of 20,000 word review. It's always sort of somewhere between five and 10,000 words. And Susie wanted about four, four or 5,000 words this time. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm throwing some stuff overboard that I, uh, that I don't think is as important, focusing on the stuff that is. I get to the end and I'm thinking, now, how do you sum up? This this thing because it's free, it automatically downloads. <laughs> it comes with all the security updates. It's it's uh, got some new stuff, but it's also very familiar. And how do, and I was thinking back to like the drama of old versions of OS ten that were updates. Where it's like, well, should I really do it? Is it safe? Maybe I'll just stay on on um, you know Snow Leopard for another couple of years. And 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 routine is the word that I that I came out with, which is not to say it's not interesting and. Even parts of it are exciting, but I think Apple wants it to be seen as a routine thing. And in fact, something that Apple hammered home uh, with me when I was visiting them, talking about El Capitan, is this idea that all of the like new best security updates all just roll into El Capitan. It runs the on all the same Macs that ran. Uh, Yosemite, which is also all the same Macs that ran Mavericks, which is also all the same Macs that wrote that uh, ran Mountain Lion, um, and I think maybe even Lion. I mean, it, it's pretty. So it's all compatible. It it's free. It can roll out automatically. You click a couple of buttons and it installs itself. Routine is not necessarily a dirty word here. Um, that's what Apple wants it to be. We go all the way back to some hardware released in 2007, if I remember right, like practically just after the Intel uh, transition. Uh, I think there are some models. And then I think you creep on other models. You have to go to 2008, 2009. Yeah. Although if you look (laughs) at the – I was looking at the reviewer's guide, which I got – and it is interesting to see that Apple's approach – Apple's approach is they want everybody on the latest OS. That is really interesting. They don't want to make it like – Oh, you're completely trapped because they do push out all the all the security updates and things like that as a part of it. So they want everybody on 
this uh, on this latest version. So what ends up happening instead is that different features are barred from different units. So like uh, handoff and instant hotspot, you know, there's a list of like early 2015 MacBook, 2012 or newer MacBook Pro, 2012 or newer MacBook Air, 2012 or newer Mac Mini, 2013 Mac Pro. I, like, and everyone AirDrop has that, and and like only certain models support metal. And only certain models support AirPlay, and only certain models support PowerNap. And, you know, this is how they do it now, is um, some features don't work if you're on an older Mac. But you can still run the update, and it just won't give you those features. And I think that's a better approach, honestly, because it it actually lets those systems that are older not be completely stranded and miss the security updates and some of the features that they could take advantage of. So philosophically, I think it's a better approach. Yeah, I agree because uh, you don't leave people completely behind. And uh, because there are security fixes, I don't want people running Lion. I want them to be running, if they can, uh, Yosemite and uh, or, or uh, sorry, Yosemite or El Capitan. And uh, if you're running Yosemite, you should just run El Capitan because it's probably going to be faster and more efficient. Uh, and from what I can tell, I mean, this was a strategy with iOS 9. It wasn't announced, but it sounds like I, I have heard varying things since it came out was that iOS 9 was potentially going to run better on older devices than iOS 8 would because they had pulled stuff out that was bad. For, I mean, I shouldn't say they pulled it. They made it more modular so that things that didn't need to be loaded or dealt with on older machines because they couldn't actually use the code were just not being activated. And so you didn't have things happening in the background. Yeah, I think they did some analysis that was um, the, uh, in both of these operating systems about what what they could uh, like like the low power mode that's in iOS nine is a similar thing where they they put switches in there or or put access to switches that I, they said on stage that you didn't even know were there, but that also means that they have the ability in software to kind of analyze like what is happening over here in this subsystem and what's happening over here. And I suspect that part of that might also be that that for some devices, that stuff's just shut off. Like, because right. low power mode turns off a whole bunch of like graphics stuff, like transitions and effects and animations. And, you know, maybe more of that is just plane turned off for older models that once you've got that level of control where you're like making decisions about you know all this stuff it's not one big switch bank where like in my house i've got a i've got a a junction box and you know i've got like in my kitchen i can turn off like the lights in my kitchen all the power to my kitchen but the rest of the house is just like (laughs) there's one switch and it's the whole house and and so if you can get that fine grain control in your operating system where you can flip off you know this thing, but not that thing. Um, I think that has effects beyond just the low power mode. Um, but that's, you know, that's my speculation. So it, it is an interesting approach that they're doing. They don't want to leave people behind and say, just forget it. And at some point, I suppose they will take those systems from 2009 or whatever and say, well, you can't really run this again. But um, they haven't yet because, um, and, and I think there's good reason for that because they know that there are a lot of old Macs out there and they want them, you know, the worst thing is if they have to go back to, like Mountain Lion and do a security update, right? They don't want to do that. So instead they've said, look, just update to the latest. You can do it. It's compatible. You won't get all the new features, but you will get all the software updates instead of having like a team of very sad programmers who have to do security <laughs> updates on three-year-old OSs. Oh, God, I knew a guy that. at Microsoft who was in what they call, and Apple has a group and every, every company has this, a continuing engineering group. And he was responsible at that time for Windows 95 when I forget was that XP. And so you, you had to keep Windows 95 DLLs and things like that working 
forever because there's such an installed base. <laughs> and I feel like Apple, this is Apple's rip the Band-Aid off thing. And I think it's an interesting thing to look at with El Capitan because they've been so willing to uh, say, yeah, yeah, power PC, blah, blah, you know, or like they, they're, they'll they cut off the past as necessary to ensure they have a path future because they're not going to be in Microsoft's shoes supporting XP in, you know, tooth or trying to not support XP in 2015 or supporting Windows 95 for more than a decade. Apple's like, yeah. And so, but this is nice because they said what we were all saying a year ago, you and I had this conversation, everyone had this conversation. Oh my God, Yosemite is too much. You didn't take the time with it. They eventually worked it all out, but it took, uh -huh. I feel like longer and was more painful than almost any release. And now we're like, just slow down. And they did. And that was already obviously in the works when Yosemite yeah. came out because they spend, you know, their cycle is a year or more. Um, and I've had planet. none of those effects with El Capitan. I've been running it since the first beta. So I spent the whole summer running El Capitan. And yeah, there were some bugs at the beginning because it was a beta. But uh, it's been solid for me for, for weeks, if not months now. And that's something that is not, that you know, that's not was not the case with Yosemite, where it was shaky up to and uh, maybe even through release. Uh, El Capitan, I've had no, I've had no problems like that. So I, I think, I think it benefits everybody to have this approach. I, I actually feel like Apple needs to get off the hamster wheel of these, of these milestone marketing operating system releases. Does anybody really care about, you know, hey, there's, there's even El Capitan. I mean, I guess they'll get some marketing, hey, about it, but. I don't know. A part of me thinks that they'd be better off doing smaller releases throughout the year. I, I guess for compatibility reasons and and uh, for development reasons, you you want to have big a big milestone and and you can talk about it at WWDC and that's all good. But it just it, it's gotten to the point where it's so routine that I don't know if anybody would notice if uh, ten point eleven just went to you know ten point eleven point one point two point three point four and that was just how the world worked is that there were updates every few months yeah i think um, if, as long as they have major things like uh, we'll talk in a second about uh, system integrity protection as long as they have things that that break older software that require real rework and, and recompilation by yeah, developers those need a milestone but, but even true. then, you could say, we've got a new module that'll protect your Mac. It's called SIP. To install this module, first check compatibility, and we can run something against or, or uh, you know, you don't have to in install it. Or it could be an on-off thing, too. It could be something, enable this. If you have problems, there's a revert position. Here's a big switch that lets you turn off module X. Uh, and, uh, you know, not, they haven't done that. I mean, they released, uh, in the middle of Lion, they released iCloud, from remembering right, wasn't it? Or no, Mac App Store? I forget. They had some. Oh, I can't, so far ago. It's so funny. Um, yeah. But there were some things, or, or like even uh, 8.1 of iOS 8 in Yosemite when they got uh, continuity working fully. Like there's there's been incremental things that are pretty huge. There wasn't a specific revert position, but it also wasn't, um, you know, a, a do or die thing forever or that you had to have it to keep running software that you had. I mean, this time around, I think uh, I've been running it since um, El Capitan, since uh, Public Beta 2 on one of my machines installed it on the other a few weeks ago. And I agree with you on the stability. The only problems I've had have really been from third-party software because of things like SIP and, uh, and you know, a few other minor changes, I think, that in uh, maybe sync-level stuff because some of my some of the programs I use that uh, – access calendar and other iCloud features were a little wonky, um, maybe because of sandboxing. I don't know. But those were repaired um, by, uh, you know, in, in new betas from the software developers, typically shipped as public betas, even before 
today. So mm-hmm. um, let's talk about a couple of specific things. Because so, so actually, so here's a recommendation up top. Oh, and, and folks, we're going to talk about iPhones. Jason also wrote MacWorld's iPhone uh, 6S and 6S Plus reviews that came yes. out uh, first look last week, and then uh, the full review uh, just uh, yesterday. And uh, we'll talk about those after uh, after a break in just a moment. We're going to finish an El Capitan. First, so you can zoom ahead if you're looking just for iPhones. Uh, but uh, so this is such a stable release. We talked about this with uh, Susie Oaks, and I talked about this too. When iOS nine came out, it was like, oh gosh, should we just tell people to update? Like we're not. I'm not used to that. I'm used to saying, well, maybe wait. Maybe you want nine point zero point one. And then we said, no, no, iOS nine is actually just install it. It's iOS eight, but better, and yeah. all the developers are ready. And you can see it. The, the pace of iOS nine. Updates for apps shows that developers aren't that concerned because it didn't break so much that every developer had to push out a new release. So some are still, uh, I think, tinkering to take advantage of the features. El Capitan, should people just go ahead and update on uh, September 30th? I think so. I mean, I think I think you. it's always good to check. What I always say is check with the uh, developers of the apps that you rely on to do your job, That the, the must-haves. If you've got an app that's a must-have, check. Because they probably have a statement that says, do you know, do we work on El Capitan or not? And uh, that's always a good idea, just in case something happens. Like, you know, if you, I mean, the stuff that's broken for me, it's all been re- related to the SIP stuff where, where uh, privileges that previously were given to all administrators are now reserved. And it's a, it's a good security improvement, but some apps needed to be changed because they, they didn't work. They couldn't go through that door anymore so they had to go through a, a side door instead <laughs> um but none of those are productivity apps they're like little add-ons like default folder or their backup utilities which again that that that's important that super duper work with it although super duper works with it so it doesn't really matter now um or something like bartender which just got an update and supports the 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 new security model so i would check that first but in terms of like is it safe for me generally to to install? The answer is absolutely yes. And in fact, I think you are more safe to install it because uh, because it is going to have a bunch of these security improvements built in and it's the current version. And so anytime there's a security hole that is discovered or somebody reports, a security researcher reports to Apple that there is a security flaw that they've found, a- Apple's going to fix it on the current OS first and maybe only, but certainly first. So I think it's always... Um, a good idea to be on the on on the uh, current version if you can manage it. And this was not a this is not a not a, a an update with a lot of drama. It just uh, you know the font in the menu bar changed. I think for the better. But otherwise, it's uh, you know it adds some features and is a nice little update. It's not it's it's not going to change your world. And I think that's a good thing. It's just better. Yeah, I'm I'm totally on the same page with you. Is that if you're running Yosemite, you should run this because it's better. It's everything but better. Yeah. And so why not? Um, on the SIP front, the uh, rootless or system integrity protection thing. I have an article that'll be up on MacWorld. Uh, should be by the time you hear this uh, about right. the status of that. Because during testing in the beta releases, Apple made it easy to disable this mode, which protects uh, all the system files. And the idea behind it is that it. It, it's not to protect us from ourselves, although some people would say, you know, Apple's infantilizing us. It's making us less able to make changes to the system. Uh, it's partially true because you have to go through a couple hoops to change it. But the idea is that malware can no longer – I mean, there's always ways to break things, right? But by default, and if everything in Apple's security model is now correct, there's no way when you're booted as a normal user with this mode enabled, which is the default thing when you install El Capitan, for malware to come in and just mess with critical files. It can put files elsewhere 
elsewhere. It can put them in the user space. It can try to do other stuff in your own um, home directory and library and launch things within that. But those uh, ostensibly, that malware will have a harder time of crossing a barrier to having full access. And we'll see in practice how that works out. But Apple, yeah. so Apple had a simple switch during the beta where you could boot into recovery disk, select an option from menu and say disable it. Now you have to boot into recovery disk. You have to run a launch terminal, enter yeah. a simple command, and then restart. So it's not that big a deal, but it's a slightly higher bar. You have to be slightly more well, technical to do it. It's a power user feature and 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 power users will be able to to turn that off with ease and and you can google it, right? I mean, it's very yeah, yeah. very easy. They're not hiding it. Right. It's not a secret. It's no. just something they're not making available. And oh, so the you mentioned default folder. Default folder, uh you can use it. You have to turn SIP um, actually, it's interesting. Depending on the software you're using, some software can use default folder even with SIP turned on, but not all right. of it. Depends. Not all of it. Yeah. So you have to turn SIP off for default folder 4.7 latest release. But uh, the developer assures us he's working steadily away. He hopes by the end of October to have uh, version 5, which will be fully SIP compatible. And, you know, a few months ago, I was writing about this and was worried that a lot of utility software would go away. And it turns out only Total Finder and Total Spaces 2 from the same company, they're pretty dubious. Um, they will continue to support, uh, I think Total Finder requires SIP off, Total Spaces 2 can work, and they haven't completely figured out their direction. So people use either of those uh, utilities will have some trouble. Um, you mentioned Bartender 2 just released uh, on Monday with a fully SIP-compliant version, if you use that. Super Duper oh. and Carbon, uh, uh, Carbon, Carbon Copy Cloner. Cloner. Uh-huh. CCC. Uh, they, um, CCC, it's like the old Russian initials, right? No, yes. SSS. Uh, SSS. They originally, before I think Public Beta 2, thought they were going to have trouble. Then I believe Public Beta 2 fixed one small permissions issue, and both developers are like, oh, no, actually, this is totally fine. We're cool. Never mind. We're good. So yeah. I haven't found anything besides those Total Finder and Total Spaces 2 programs where there's not a path uh, forward, either a new release um, or it just works if you really want. I mean, I think default folder is the only one that I know people are really planning to use where if they want to use it now, they have to turn SIP off. So that's good. Yeah, it, it's. Uh, I think that says something about how uh, this release, that that seems to be the compatibility issue with this release. Otherwise, this release just kind of works and it's, it's not an issue. Um, and that security issue, yeah, it, it, we'll see. But I, I imagine there are some a, a bunch of security flaws, some specific security flaws that were that were because of the privilege that yeah. was allowed to every user. <laughs> and and there was probably a discussion at Apple where they're like, why, other than the historical, uh, you know, Unix permissions system that we give to a system administrator, why do we do this for our users by default? And they probably realized that they could lock down a lot of those permissions and make them not available, and that would close this hole that malware was exploiting. And yeah, it doesn't change the fact that you can still install something and put in your username and password and authenticate and install. It's a very, very narrow window of things that you had this, uh, you know, root access to that uh, you don't really need it, and the malware needs it. So yeah, it's. I think I you don't notice you don't notice it in practice. It's just these few little apps that use that hole. Some people are highly concerned that this is another step on the road to all of our software must be purchased through the Mac App Store. 
the Mac OS 10 is like iOS is totally locked down. And it, it is a step in that direction, except that they're giving us an easy way around it. If they, if you'd had to, you know, run some third party thing and install a KEXT file and which you could right. do for, you know, for kernel con- extension. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, like a continuity, there was a way to enable a handoff with older machines, which I did on one of my older Macs, but you had to install a kernel extension and do that. And th- this isn't like that, but I don't know if Apple really plans eventually to lock OS 10 down. Like we don't know they do. I don't think they do because the I, ecosystem doesn't make sense. And you could, but you no. could argue this is a step in that direction, except they give us control. So how is it actually a step that direction? Yeah, it's actually consistent with what Apple has done with things like Gatekeeper and the Mac App Store, where there are security features that you can turn on or that are enabled at a certain level by default that will limit, you know, like limit you to launching applications that have been signed so that Apple knows who developed them and they can turn off launching of things that are, are known as being malware. But you can turn it off and you can even escalate it to a higher level and only allow things that are from the Mac App Store. And that's, that's called the parent setting. <laughs> yeah, and, and, yeah, and, and that, I think, is, is a, uh, it's a way to merge the kind of philosophy that they've got with something on iOS that's totally locked down without making it mandatory. And I think that's the path that Apple has been on with the Mac and will continue to be on, which is they want to have that stuff there so that you can, you can take advantage of it if you want to, but, you know, it's it's a computer. It's not totally locked down, and you don't you can just not if you don't want to. I I cannot but agree with you, sir. Good sir, you're Excellent. so correct. Uh, I want to talk briefly about two factor authentication because it's a subject near and dear to my heart. And um, Apple announced uh, you know months ago, and then it's been trickling out details about an update to two-step verification and they're calling it two-factor authentication, which to some people is the same term. There are some slight differences in how it gets implemented. Um, but this is a deeply native embedded second factor system where you enter your password for an Apple ID, like in any of Apple's properties, software devices, and it gives you one unified response where it gives you now a six digit code or let's you select uh, optionally to have it call you and then uh, do a voice call or an SMS message with this code. And right now with two-step, it's, you know, it's awkward. And I log into all kinds of Apple sites. I can go to iTunes Connect. I can go to the dev site. I can go to other places in the Apple ecosystem and it just takes my password. So it's really not uniformly implemented. Um, two-factor is supposed to be more extensive. You'll see it even when you're using iTunes, you'll, uh, you know, on the desktop on OS 10, it'll actually do a two-factor uh, uh, handshake now too. So Apple talked about rolling this out gradually to test users. Then I thought it would be ready by the time El Capitan shipped. It would be like a wholesale change or switchover. I'm not seeing it yet. All of your devices include, you have to have uh, everything on El Capitan, everything on iOS 9 and, and watchOS 2. Apparently all your devices have to be at that level that are logged into the same Apple ID in order to be offered two-factor and you can only enable it not from the website, but from uh, OS 10 from the iCloud preference pane uh, or from uh, the iCloud setting uh, it's under security. You tap your name there and go to security and privacy. Um, so I'm not seeing it yet, but when, I will, when you do, it'll be neat because it does things like it shows the location of a device demanding or asking for access. So you're, you're on your iPhone, you tap, uh, you, know, you enter your password, and then on every device you're connected to, it'll, it'll say, hey, someone's trying to get access. Do you want to allow it? Here's a code to enter, but it will actually, on, in OS 10 at least, and I haven't seen the, uh, the iOS version, it'll show you a, a map. It uses GPS and it says, here's where the person is trying to get access from. If it's nice. and under certain circumstances, not always. So I'm um, looking forward to that because I think that will make uh, people even more um, sec- like feeling secure, but also actually secure. Yeah. And both are important. 
Yeah, I like to I like to feel secure. Um, continuity and handoff they seem much more reliable to me with El Capitan because I'd updated to uh, iOS nine betas first and then was using El Capitan after that. But I felt like the minute I got El Capitan on one machine, a lot of features with handoff that never worked, even though I've got 2014 and 2015 Macs, uh, or 2014 era Macs, I should say, Yosemite was always terrible. And um, I put El Capitan on the same machines and it worked better. I don't know if you had inconsistency problems or um, if you're seeing improvements. Well, I, I never had huge problems with, with handoff to begin with. I mean, every now and then I would say, why is it not working? And I toggle something and then it works again. And I'd say that's pretty, that's been pretty consistent for me now. Um, there's more stuff that is, I think, surfaced about things that are available for handoff. I think I've noticed, uh, but, but yeah, it's, uh, that handoff has been shaking off the bugs for a year now. <laughs> and, and I think it's, I think they're, uh, you know, I think it's in better shape now. Now I was, I was looking at something at my iPhone while sitting at my desk and noticed that the, uh, that the handoff, uh, Safari handoff was, had popped up in my dock, which it's much more consistent now than it was, uh, in the early days of handoff last year. I, uh, never had good luck with it. It was the weirdest thing. I could never get the yeah. hot, uh, instant hotspot feature even though I'm sitting there with my phone and the device is like a foot apart, it would never show up. Now it shows up uh, pretty much every time. Uh, it's pretty great. So if you've been having problems, clearly mileage varies. Uh, so favorite features, anything that to you that you're like, oh, thank I mean, I know that I know you love transit. I know you love transit features because you're in a supported uh, area. But anything else where uh, you could talk about transit too. But anything else where you said, oh, thank goodness, this is finally fixed. Or, or I really like this thing I wasn't expecting to like. Well, so... So I, I like the changes in Safari. You know, people have talked about how you can mute audio coming from tabs. You can basically say mute the audio in this tab, mute the audio in some other tab. So if you've got a bunch of tabs open and something is playing audio somewhere, you can you can silence it, which is nice. But I really like uh, the pin sites feature, which lets you take your favorite sites and sort of stick yeah. them on it. They're like super tabs, kind of, that are always there and always loaded. Um, and I've really gotten used to that. I think that's a fun um, I think it's a fun feature that pe- it may take some getting used to, but I think I think not a lot, not as many people use like bookmark, uh, fa- like the favorites bar, the the that I use, but I think a lot of people don't use that, and and Apple wanted to encourage people to sort of have another way to sort of save their favorite sites and have them always be there. Well, it's the refresh feature that you mentioned that I think I forget that that's part of it is that a bookmark your, your bookmarks tab. Uh, t- uh, what do you, wait, your, your tab, your bookmarks bar. bar, thank you. Oh, I lost my brain there. Uh, bookmarks bar. Uh, that is a place you go to, to find things that you use commonly, whether you're showing them as icons or whatever, but the pinned items, they refresh on some basis in the background. Yeah, they, they stay loaded. And if there are external links on them, they load in new tabs. If they're internal links to the site, they will continue to load in the in the pinned tab. So it's some different behavior. And like, if you try to close, if you've got a, you try to close the window on a pin tab, but there are other things open. It doesn't close the window. It just moves you to the, to the tabs that you've got open. There's some, the keyboard shortcuts and things are, are a little bit different. Um, and, uh, and keyboard access to the, the bookmarks bar is now different. Uh, you have to do command option and a number to activate them instead of just command and a number because the command number is now tied to the pinned sites and your other tabs. So there's some changes there, but in the end, I, I like having um, uh, pinned sites and, I, I, and I've and i been using that feature a lot for my own stuff 
and uh, other other uh, stuff that I use regularly. I've just got them always accessible for me. So Six Colors and The Incomparable are always in there. A weather page for my, my weather station. And actually, I've got a Google uh, Drive pinned as well because I'm always trying to find a, a document in Google Drive. And so I just always got it there. I'm a tab closer myself. I like to have this. I'm, I'm an inbox zero-er. I'm a tab closer. Yeah, me I too. Like, me too. And, and this actually sounds appealing to me because it's not. it doesn't have the uh, mental real estate of a tab that I need to do something about. It's just a thing that's there when I need it on demand. Uh, our, yeah. our mutual friend, Adam Enks, has like, I don't know, 100,000, a million tabs open. I don't know. He yeah. is a tabber. And I'll be curious to hear his reaction uh, to whether pinning changes that because he never used RSS. And for me, at, at one point, RSS was almost a uh, substitute for like transitory tabs because I didn't want to go up, you know, I didn't want to wake up in the morning and open 20 tabs, New York Times, Washington Post, Mac World, whatever. I wanted RSS to tell me and I'd miss stuff and that'd be fine. But right. painting is somewhere in that matrix of different kinds of options. It's a little different. It's a little bit different. I like it. Um, it when you talk about other features that popped out for me, I'm, I, I, there's a lot of change to mission control in El Capitan and um, a lot of people are going to talk about the split screen view, which kind of apes the split screen view in iOS 9, where it's basically full screen view, except you can have two apps in a space instead of just one. Um, and I think it will be useful on smaller, like laptop displays. Uh, on my 5K iMac, it is still pointless because the, <laughs> that screen is way too big to have one or two windows open in it for yeah. most uses. I'm sure there are edge cases, but you know, and, and I've never been a huge fan of full screen mode. Um, even on my 11 inch MacBook Air, I don't love it, but I use it much more there than I would on on this huge iMac. The thing that I really like is that Mission Control itself is a lot better. They, um, when you activate Mission Control, which used to be called Expose, it's the idea that you, you can see like you've got lots of windows open and it will show you where they all are. So if you lost track of a window, you can find it. And that's a lot better. And I know that sounds weird, but it, it's true. When you, when you trigger Mission Control, first off, it doesn't slide the little bar down from the top of the screen. It, it saves that real estate for the thumbnails. Um, it no longer stacks all of your windows from a particular application on top of each other. Mm -hmm. So if you've got like eight windows open in BBEdit and five windows open in Safari, it used to be you'd get a Safari stack and a BBEdit stack. And now all the windows are visible so you can see every window that you have open. That's, a, that's an improvement. And then they've done some really intelligent stuff with geography. And I know that sounds crazy, but, you know... Um, it's actually something that that is very important. Um, John Syracuse talks about this a lot about like using things in the Finder and and using your spatial senses in the Finder and remembering where windows are and remembering where icons are is actually really important to how we navigate these interfaces. And Mission Control, when when you used to launch it or Expose, it would fling those those uh, windows all over the screen. And now it, <laughs> whatever it's doing, it the, the algorithm it's using, it tries very hard to keep the windows, the little thumbnails of the windows in the vicinity of where the window was and keep its relationship with other windows. So if you had a window that was sort of up on the top right corner of your screen, when you run, when you turn on mission control and it shows you all the thumbnails, that window from the top right will be basically somewhere at the top right. It's not going to go somewhere else. And if there was another window next to it, it'll probably still be next to that window. So so that means when you launch Mission Control, the stuff is not going to go very far. It's not going to travel very far away. Now, obviously, if you've got eight things stacked in the center of your screen, it's going to have to make some decisions. But it just, it feels like 
uh, all of those new features put together, the not not having app stacks and, and trying to keep track of the geography. Now, when you activate Mission Control, instead of it being a big scan of like where's that window, where's that window, it's like you can you can watch the windows emerge as you activate it. You you can see exactly where the window is and then click on it and get to it. And I, I like that a lot. And then and then when you move your cursor up to the top of the screen, the little uh, spaces bar drops down. You can drag things in and out, which you could before, but you know it, it's a uh, it's a better um, it's a better experience now if I drag if I, I can drag things into uh, uh, to different spaces or into split screen mode and things like that. So it's it's not my favorite feature, but they've done a really nice job in making it better. It's much more useful, I think, and refined and understandable now than it was before. I agree on that spatial thing is I have two monitors I work at. One is larger. It's a 16 to 9, like a standard resolution one that is in front of me. And then I've got an older monitor that's kind of my side thing. And I, my brain knows things are there. And I have this long-running long bug with um, spaces uh, in that uh, I think it's been going on for three releases. I've never been able to fix it where I quit certain apps when I relaunch them, they're on the, my primary window, not my secondary, and I have to move them every time. They just do not, for some reason, they will not stay there. Huh. And I think there's some, someone said something about, you have to go and like find some deep file and remove it and restart and rebuild something. And I just never, I should probably do it at some point, but I was nervous at the time because it required mucking about. But I thought, okay, well, I'll install Yosemite. That'll fix it. Like, well, some things got better. I installed El Capitan. Ah, it's still there. And I um, uh, don't know what it is, but that's, that's just me. Hmm. Um, I like the, uh, it's a funny little thing, but I like the spotlight improvements. I know you talked about them in the review. I mean, just being able to yep. drag. I love that it was a laugh line at WWDC when uh, so Craig Frederiki showed that you could drag the uh, spotlight search window, no longer fixed in the middle of your screen. You can yeah. drag it around and everyone's like, he's like cutting edge. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it, but that, that's, you know, that was a two, that was like a broken metaphor is why it took them two years to, to make, the, to get all the way there, which is the spotlight used to be a thing that dropped down out of the menu bar, right? Right? Mm-hmm. You, you click the little magnifying glass in the menu bar and it would reveal a spotlight menu with a place where you could type in your search. And then with, with Yosemite, they said, oh, we're going to put it in the center of the screen, but there's still the menu up in the corner. And that was like, what, what does the thing do? It's making a menu that isn't there anymore. And instead there's a box. <laughs> it was so weird. And now it's like, there's still the magnifying glass in the menu bar. It's, it's a, it's a way to activate spotlight. But the fact is there's the spotlight box. You can move it anywhere. You can resize the results. It's, it's completely, it's like took them a couple releases to completely divorce it from the idea that it was a drop down in your menu bar but it that that finally we've kind of gotten there where yeah it's just a floating thing that you can move around um and uh and it's got access to all it's basically all the same data sources that siri has access to in ios and you can do some natural language queries you can say i did one the other day that was uh you know presentations from october 2014 and that worked it um you know you it has to know it's only for certain file types but you can do that where you can you can say that or or um or you can search for you know uh, you know pictures from Oregon from 2014, and it it it, it does a much better job at, at at finding some of those queries. It's not without its quirks, um, but uh, it, it is hooked up to all those same kind of data sources. And so when you start typing something in Spotlight or in Safari, because um, it also this the same functionality is built into the Safari uh, search bar. Um, you will get results that are not just a bunch of search engine autocomplete. They'll, they'll give you actual content. 
I dig it. That's uh, we're connected to the internet after all. It turns out we're connected to the internet. Perhaps we could pull stuff in like that. Well, uh, we'll we'll come back in a moment and talk about iPhones. And uh, so we're recommending people install El Capitan. Read Jason's review at MacWorld.com. And let's just uh, take a moment because I would like to thank this week's sponsor, and that is Red Hat. Uh, Red Hat is a, a company that you may not have heard of, even though they help power a lot of what goes on in data centers around the world. Uh, it's, it's that, um, that thing called the internet. Well, a lot of it is just, it's just Red Hat underneath. They offer storage solutions, cloud computing, everything you need for application development. It's all open source and it's all enterprise grade. Uh, Red Hat runs in every executive department of the U.S. federal government, every airline, telecom giant, and healthcare company in the Fortune Global 500, the New York Stock Exchange, and every commercial bank in the Fortune 500. In fact, more than 90% of all the companies in the Fortune 500 use Red Hat from for everything from the critical to the routine. The, the thing is, it's just surprising that not many people know that because Red Hat is kind of part of the DNA of, of uh, the middle stage of the internet. You know, it goes back uh, almost two decades, its origins, uh, and it's, it snuck in, it got comfortable, and it quietly transformed the technology business by providing supported open source software, giving you the certification and reliability that you need in a data center quality product. And, you know, sometimes the most disruptive technologies is stuff nobody notices at first. But you can find out more about how Red Hat is quietly redefining enterprise technology by visiting redhat.com. Red Hat, build on it, run with it, count on it. And thank you to Red Hat for being our sponsor this week. Well, uh, I hear there are some new devices that look very much like the old devices, slightly larger, imperceptibly yes. larger. And you got to spend a fair amount of time with them Uh uh, I, I am, um, I'm going to tell you this, this has been annoying me ever since I read the, the embargoed reviews that came out. Uh, I didn't want one of these. I didn't want a new, I have an iPhone six. It's great. I love it. It's great. Now I want an iPhone six S I don't want it, but I want it, you know, like I thought <laughs> there's, nothing, there's nothing that compelling and I'm not a big, like, well, let me get the latest, greatest thing. Then I did the math, and because of uh, all the new installment programs, including Apple's upgrade plan for iPhone, it's actually probably cheaper for me to get a new one than to keep the one I have now. My iPhone 6, the buyout value I have from uh, the rest of my AT&T installment plan, my next plan, is I think less than uh, what I can sell it for. So I can actually sell my iPhone 6, make money off it, and switch to a new plan at the same cost I'm paying today and have an iPhone 6S. So. We're rapidly entering a world where um, the two-year the, – the, the disappearance of the two-year plan is just being replaced by one year with a buyout. And uh, that seems to be where we're headed is that is the people who want to get a new phone every year are going to be able to get a new phone every year uh, pretty much for what they spent to get a new phone every two years, which is know, it's a so pretty good funny. as long as they turn in their old phone, which which, you know, some people for some people, that's not the deal. I, I hear people like saying, oh, it's the perfect deal. You turn in your old phone, and you get a new one. But a lot of families roll down their old phones. And uh, so that that adds some complexity. Like my daughter has my old iPhone five. And my son has my wife's old iPhone 5. And so, you know, we if we had had to turn those in as part of this plan, sure, we'd be up to date. But then we're, then what? We would have to go buy a phone for the kids and pay for that. So there are complexities there. But, but yeah, this, um, you know, that little, that was a little tangent. But the point is that, you know, Apple, Apple tries very hard to make a good new iPhone every year. And I, I, I'm not sure whether it was proceeding under the assumption that most people were, were upgrading every other year instead of every year. But regardless, the 6S... 
uh, models, both of them success and the success plus, there's a lot in there. Like the, the, the approach here seems to be you change the look. And then you change the next year, you change the internals a lot. And so the look changed last year and it was faster than the iPhone 5S and had Apple Pay. It definitely had some new features. It was definitely a big step forward. And and the the look, including the screen, changed dramatically. And that was a big deal. But this year, the speed difference is way more. It is much (laughs) bigger of a difference than it was from the 5S to the 6. And the RAM doubled, which is actually has as nerdy as it sounds to talk about RAM in a smartphone. It has a huge impact on usability because apps, when you can keep more apps in memory, what it means is that when you launch, if you've ever launched an app and that you were just in like 10 minutes ago and you launch it again and instead of it snapping open right where you were, it like shows you the splash screen oh, and you wait yeah, and it all loads. The time. Yep. That's because it's been purged from memory because your iPhone ran out of memory from the other things you were doing. So you put in double the memory and what happens is that stuff happens a lot less often. And so if you're switching around between apps, they just pop to the next app and you're right back where you were before uh, you switch to a new you know t- uh, tab in Safari and it and it's that that you knew had loaded and instead of it sitting there and reloading it and you're like wait a second I loaded this but it it, it has to reload it with more RAM it's just there because the, it, it, it's able to keep that in memory. So it's a nerdy feature that has a direct uh, improvement on usability. So between the the speed improvements the RAM improvements, you can throw in the Touch ID sensor is much faster. So you basically put your your your, your finger down on the button and it unlocks instantaneously, basically. It is, it is surprising. And then we haven't even <laughs> talked about 3D Touch, which is this whole new interaction that is the sort of biggest change to iPhone interaction in the in the history of the platform. Yeah, so well, you know, there's a lot here. <laughs> Apple moved away from specs. Years and years ago, they moved away from specs. And then it was even the, you know, they're not even going to talk often about, I and mean, when they bring up a spec, I'm always fascinated. So during the iPad Pro release, they talked specs and they showed numbers and comparisons. And I found that fascinating because it meant they were trying to prove something that they, yeah. that you know, and if, if they don't mention a spec, either it's not a good one or they just don't have to prove it anymore because they don't think it matters to consumers. So they won't yes. tell you how much memory is in an iPhone because they don't care and, and people, you know, run tests or they do uh, breakdowns or whatever and you find out. But the fact that it has such a significant hit is... Um, is amazing, and I think uh, now I think Gruber linked to this. Um, I don't know if all the tests have been run, but the iPhone six and six S are faster than some of the slower Apple laptops now. By by yeah. the geek, uh, that's the it's a, a set of a suite of tests. So for any particular thing, if you're doing certain things that rely on some desktop style features, I think the laptops are still going to outperform. But on a lot of individual tests and the overall score, these phones are laptop scale. Not even you don't even need the iPad Pro for that. You have a phone that is essentially better than probably 60 to 80 percent of the laptops in the market, and even better yep. than the lowest quartile of uh, of Apple laptops. I, that's I, I think wild. Yeah, it is. It is. I mean, I think the iPad Air two is, you know, is still in the ballpark too. But these are these are powerful devices. They are much more powerful than the ones even last year, showing kind of amazingly that there's still a lot of efficiency uh, to be worked out of the. You know, there's room to grow. I guess I would say. Which every time you see the charts of like how how much faster they are than the the previous year's iPhone and the and the one before that and the one before that. You say, well, surely this can't continue, and you know, and last year's in, uh, up, update was a little more incremental. But then here we are again with another big boost. It's not quite twice as fast, but it's not far off. And but, uh, but from a practical, practical standpoint, I mean, this is why Apple, I think, got out of specs is they didn't want people. Uh, you don't 
you don't always want last year's model to seem crappy if you're still selling it, right? right. They're still selling right. uh, the, the six and the six, the five S, the six and the six plus. And, and they so, haven't gotten slower, right? They haven't gotten slower. Usually, <laughs> right. what happens, and this goes back to what yeah. we were talking about about uh, El Capitan. What, what really happens is they Apple Apple puts that power in there and then uses it. You know, they, they use it for things that the other phones can't do. And so you see that, like, integrating the motion coprocessor allows them right. to do things like have the uh, the uh, call to Siri, which I won't say, you know, the Ahoy Telephone feature. Ahoy Telephone. Um, that when, when, you, when you tell uh, send a greeting to Siri, um, uh, Siri can be listening all the time and not just when it's plugged in. And that's because the new hardware has a low power state that allows it to listen without burning your battery like the on the old models. And and there's there's a you know the 3D touch is an example of that. The live photos uh, example is an example of that. There's a lot of features that are built in there that you really need the hardware that's in the the 6S models to to do. But you know that that's that's also the march of progress. The six is a pretty amazing device. It's just a, a little less amazing than the six S because there's been a year and there have been advances. Well, and one could argue. I mean, this is where when you look at the Android market, without without getting into the morass of what fragmentation is or any of that stuff, is that you can have phones that are a year old. I mean, literally flagship phones that are a year old in the Android world, and they won't run even sometimes incremental updates to the software. Yeah. And those phones may have been and remain perfectly fine, but Apple's had that philosophy. Um, you know, they shortened, I would say, the lifespan of iOS for a bit, and then they've broadened it in the last two years. So there was a time yeah, I, like I agree. The, the iPad, like the original iPad being abandoned, and but it was so low performance, it would not have been able to let them move forward. So now you have this, you can move backwards in time, you know, for, for multiple years now with iOS to get some of the features. So you're using the latest thing, you just don't have all of it, as opposed to you want the new features, you have to buy a new phone to get all of any of the new features. This is, you buy a new phone because of specific things that pull you there or it's that time in your cycle. And that's, I feel, a very different philosophy, but it also becomes more seductive because they're not forcing you. Ah, oh, you want to use the news app. Well, the news app requires an iPhone success. Nope, you can use it with any iOS 9 device. So your current device is not crap because it can't run the news app. That's not this marketing slogan for the product, by the way. That's, no, uh, definitely not. <laughs> hopefully not. But I think I think Ruber talked about this a bit uh, during Fireball, the tick and talk thing, and I thought he broke it out really nicely. You're just talking about that a minute, uh, or ticking about that a minute ago too. Sorry, uh, is that um, is that that we think about, or I would say maybe the mainstream media talks about it as the form factor being different seems like the big thing when really it's the alternate years like this that we see just um, the biggest amounts of innovation and improvement. And I think it's more compelling. I got I was ready to move up. My wife's phone was dying. Her older, I forget, she had a four something. So she got my five, which she's delighted with. She does not want a six or six plus or a scale phone. She likes a smaller phone. So she's not ready to upgrade now. I got a six because we're just sort of moving up the chain. I wanted the, the newer one to test and for Apple Pay. But now I'm like, ah, oh, maybe I will get a 6X because there is so much to do. There's so much to test, so many things to try, so much fun. So um, and for, so let's talk about Force Touch being one of those because that actually – that is a hardware feature. It's not just um, something that's updated in software. Uh, a lot of people, including you, make the case that this is a big uh, – this is a game changer. Uh, yeah, it's it's a big deal. I mean, it, look, the the abilities to interact with our touchscreens are much are so limited compared to our abilities to interact with computers. Right, computers we've got trackpads or or mice with lots of buttons on them, and we've got these keyboards with all these keys on them. And on the on the touchscreen, we've got glass and a finger, and that's about it. 
that's that's all we've got. So you can't do a right click. You can't you can't do you know you you've got touch, and then if you want something else, maybe you touch for longer, or you move your finger around, <laughs> right. and and like the, the the vocabulary is limited. So by adding 3D touch, by adding these pressure sensors on the on the display of the uh, of the 6s and 6s plus, what Apple is doing is is saying um, we can we can now detect this added dimension, which is why it's called 3D Touch. And what they've done with some really impressive software, I have to say, I, I am very impressed by how I don't feel like I'm accidentally triggering, triggering 3D Touch by connecting the new, the haptic feedback that's in the, in the Taptic engine that mm-hmm. they built in, which is a much better class of vibration generator than the, than the old one. Um, and it can make these little tiny bursts uh, you put those together and and you come up with this physical vocabulary. I have to I have to describe it that way, where you get you very quickly are trained by the device to know you know that was that's something that you can't really push on. There's nothing new there, but this is something that's triggered something, and now you can look and see what you triggered, and um, it becomes natural very quickly, and it allows you to interact with items on the screen in a few different ways. So instead of just tapping or maybe tapping and holding and waiting to see if something can happen, you can press hard or press hard and then press a little harder. And when I say hard, I mean you, you put you're pushing a little bit in and then you push a little bit more. It's not like you're trying to break the thing open. And and so, you know, on the on the home screen you get up to four, you can get up to four little submenus that pop up of an app that let you sort of deep link into a feature of an app like the best example is probably you, you can jump straight to selfie mode on the camera by uh, choosing take selfie from the from the camera app on the home screen and instead of having to make sure that you're in photo mode and flipping the camera around and being ready it just it opens it goes to that mode and then when you're in an app you can uh, app developers can kind of do whatever but the primary interaction that Apple does is this thing called peek and pop which is basically mm-hmm. like a preview window so you press a little bit and a preview pops up and you can actually swipe at that point and do some actions oftentimes on that item so you peek at it and like yeah I don't really need to deal with this this is just junk mail I'm going to archive it or I'm going to delete it. Um, but if you push a little further, you kind of close the deal and then the thing just pops open as if you had tapped on it to begin with. So it's um, it's a, just a different kind of behavior. And app developers can use that or they can come up with their own, you know, build their own approaches to, to having, uh, you know, what happens when you press a little bit harder on something. And we'll see how they how they uh, adopt it. But, you know, it's a big step and, and it feels like they implemented it really well because I was dreading it being something <laughs> that was like, oh man, nobody's going to ever understand this. Nobody's ever going to trigger it or like, or they're going to trigger it all the time and it's going to be really frustrating. And the way they built that software and they interact with all the sensors on the device. And this is one of those things that is just a very hard thing for the competition to do because they don't control all the hardware and all the software at the same level that Apple does. And, and this is, so that's why this is also a smart feature tactic for Apple because it's going to be a lot harder for the competition to knock it off. Not that they won't try and not that they won't probably succeed eventually, but it will be harder for them to do it and harder for them to do it well. And 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 Apple really nailed it. Like this is this is very good. It's very well done. When you say top, uh, it taps into other sensors, you, uh, so are there issues like it's looking at the accelerometer, it's looking at other yes. factors. So uh, so it knows that you're not you're not walking with your phone and it's jiggling back and forth, and you touch it, it knows the phone is still or relatively still, and so and that kind well, of thing. Yeah, well, because you're dealing with gravity, right? So that yeah. if, you're, if you're holding the phone up to the sky, like you're looking at it, you know, you're laying in bed and holding it up, the sensors are going to report different information because the gravity is pulling down on the screen, right? <laughs> or, or if you're or if you're holding it straight up, the gravity is pulling across uh, perpendicular to the screen, um, and if you're and if you're pointing it down, then the gravity is pulling down on the screen. So, so. 
Apple, basically they have their, their pressure sensitivity in the screen, which is mostly why these things weigh a little bit more, like about mm-hmm. 20 grams, 15 grams more, um, because they have to have this whole lattice of, of, uh, of, of detectors, of, of sensors in there to detect the, the pressure. And then, um, and, but they've also got the accelerometer and things like that. And the software kind of knits all that stuff together oh, based on context great. to try and figure out how to do it. It's not an easy task. And that's the thing that kind of amazes me about it is I just kept picturing this is going to be, you know, and maybe I, I lacked some faith in Apple's ability and, and technical acumen. But I was like, wow, that's going to be really hard for it not to be uh, accidentally triggered and all of that. And it does an amazing job of gauging your intent. And that's the way I I would describe it is when I want to do 3D touch, it does it. And when I don't, it doesn't. And it's a neat, it's a, it's a pretty neat trick. Um, There is an adjustable setting you can change under accessibility. You can change how much force is required to trigger it. So if you find yourself triggering it a lot, you can back off on the sensitivity. Um, But for me, the default configuration out of the box, it just made, it, it just made sense to me. Immediately. This is, I mean, we are both a, aged, grizzled uh, Apple <laughs> veterans. And uh, I remember when contextual menus and control click was introduced uh, to whatever system version that was. And it was like half your brain opened up. It's like it lit up. It suddenly, it, it reduced the friction and irritation of doing things that made sense in context. Because everything else, you had to do all, you know, you had to work around the limitation of a single button and a single approach. And suddenly you have a right click. And you know, a control click. And this sounds so much like that, where it's like, oh, it's natural because it's missing. It actually felt felt like you're being restored. Something is the description I hear from people that this is a modality that once you're using it, it's so much part of how iOS works, and it works so well that when you suddenly go to a device that doesn't have force touch, your finger, you know, you've lost a hand. It's just this. Um, I, I think that's Apple's genius is introducing things that make. <laughs> older software and hardware hardware seem worse because we like I'm constantly trying to touch ID unlock my old iPad constantly I'm putting my finger on it it doesn't unlock I'm like why is what's broken yep. oh my head is broken the device is fine <laughs> they retrained me um, well I can't wait to try that because I've had a MacBook 12 inch uh, MacBook and I've also have an Apple Watch so I've tried different flavors of 3D touch or Force Touch, as formerly uh-huh. the the, art, the uh, feature formerly known as Force Touch. Uh, and uh, on the MacBook, it still isn't that integrated as a thing. And um, yeah. because we have, uh, you know, right-click is enough and there's other tools, but uh, we'll see where that goes. Uh, the camera side, I have been such a big fan of the camera, and I've got a very nice little mirrorless camera, uh, an X6 from Sony that I adore that helped like rekindle my love in photography because it's not a DSLR. It was inexpensive and it just takes amazing photos. And I thought I'd be using it all the time. And then the Apple kept improving, uh, its phone cameras. So as the cameras improve, I carry the next less and less. I thought I'd carry it a lot. And instead I can get such good photos and often in circumstances where the next would have a hard time because of the size or timeliness or, or whatever. And now these cameras are even better and they sound sound. And I've been looking at samples. Uh, yeah. So if you go to, um, uh, Lisa Bettany, who is uh, one of the people behind the great iPhone camera app camera plus, we'll put a link in the show notes for snap, snap, snap. And she has, I think every generation of camera of iPhone rather, and did a side by side, same scenes, every camera. And you can see now in some cases, I would say the six S is not significantly different or sometimes, I mean, you can see the differences, but in almost 
all cases, there is a difference that's noticeable. I mean, a few cases you're like, well, that's slightly better or it's different. It doesn't make an impact. But in many, you're like, all right, they just did another leap. How, how was your experience in, in testing the camera? Did you see that kind of um, that difference or did you feel it was that different? Yeah, I, I'd say uh, it's it's funny the going from what nine to twelve, eight to twelve megapixels. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it's a it's a much many more pixels, and I'd say the camera is better. I would not say it's shockingly better. I think it's better. There's more detail, but uh, and that's good. Uh, I'm not trying to say that the camera is bad. I think what I would just say is that um, the old camera was pretty good, and this one is a little bit better. But um, it's not like this is this is, goes to show that Apple's been right all along when it says it's not really about the megapixels. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> because yeah, exactly. they added a lot of they added <laughs> a lot of megapixels here, and it made it incrementally better. But it's not like oh my god, finally twelve megapixel camera. It's totally different. It's like nah, it was already pretty good, and now it's a little bit better. My favorite additions on the on the photography side, one is that there's there's four K video, which while it seems impractical. It does allow you, if you shoot 4K video, yes, maybe you're future-proofing your home videos for the future days when we've got even better screens than we do today. But if you're shooting 4K video today, what that means also is that you can crop your video mm-hmm. and motion stabilize your video and do lots of other things with your H- your video and still end up with a full resolution uh, HD, like 1080 afterward because 4k resolution gives you twice as many pixels in each direction so it's four times the total number of pixels on that video frame so you can crop it this is true for for still images too 12 megapixels means you have a better digital zoom essentially i mean it's it's a fake digital i mean digital zoom is always fake but if you zoom out and you still have you know you're you're zooming in a hundred percent uh and you don't have the pixels and it's blurry if you have the pixels like this you can crop down to an image that could still be you know 2k like i don't know a a high def image or even larger and have a crisp still image as well yeah, so that that's good, and there's image uh, stabilization for video and stills on the 6S Plus, which is also a, a good feature. But honestly, and I know that a lot of the <laughs> listeners will find this silly, the most important photo story on this on the on the 6S is the front-facing camera, which Apple still calls a FaceTime camera. But let's be serious here; it's the selfie camera. And the reason that it's you know FaceTime camera, the whole idea there is you use it for FaceTime, you're using it for video chat. You don't need a very high quality. Uh, camera for that. But if you're taking pictures of yourself, I was looking at pictures from my vacation and I was looking at the selfies that we took, you know, with the family on the beach in Oregon on the Oregon coast. And, and I was like, oh yeah, that resolution isn't that good. And they upped it at the, the new, the success models have a five megapixel camera facing forward. They uh, have this new software that does a flash using the screen and it's not just putting a white rectangle on the screen. It can drive the screen to up to 300% brightness of uh, the normal brightness for for that moment of flash mm. it does the true tone detection so it will not just be a white box but it will actually flash the screen with a particular color tone that that, that just as with the flash on the back that apple thinks that you know is harmonious and is going to give you your best thing so the stuff that you take with that front facing camera is dramatically better than it was before and that's actually a big deal because that camera gets used a lot as as surprising as it is i think to a lot of people, and, and it's the reason Apple never really focused on it before. Apple's gotten the message that selfies are a thing, and that uh, you should up your selfie game. And uh, Apple did, and so that that camera is hugely improved. That's uh, 
that's one of the biggest lacks, I think, in certain models. I mean, the Ma I feel this, again, in the MacBook, they opted for a, a kind of crummy front-facing camera. And so for video, yeah. you really you notice it, and terribly. Um, it feels like, uh, I mean, we know what people want. They want to take pictures of themselves alone and in groups. And uh, Apple decided to go for it. Uh, I think the last feature is, um, I, I, there may be some other things to talk about. I don't want to cut it off with that. But I know cases, people have had concerns about cases. You've been reassuring right. folks. Uh, Dan Frakes over at the Wirecutter apparently uh, brought a bag of cases because they review stuff and tested them all and they all fit. And um, and you're, uh, you've had the same experience. You have the leather case for the 6. Yep. Yeah, the six fine. the six cases work fine on the six S. You would have to have some sort of like amazingly. I don't think you could the, the case could exist because you it would need to be engineered within fractions of a millimeter. And I'm not sure cases can be manufactured unless it's like for outer space or something with that level of of uh, specificity. I think you're, there's always a little bit of give uh, just because of the manufacturing processes. And these phones are only larger by fractions of a millimeter so like much less than a millimeter in each dimension so uh you know does the leather case fit a little more snugly yes but it totally fits and uh we know that these use a slightly uh better grade, I guess, I don't know if I say better, different grade of aluminum and the glass yes. in some unspecified way, the glass is stronger. And <laughs> we don't know what that means. Yeah. Uh, th this is practice. Apple not, not going deep on the specs, but you know, they say that they've improved the glass again. So I, I, and it, which is good because, you know, if we talk about future directions for the iPhone, I suppose that faster is always going to be there. But, you know, if I had to make a list, it would be better battery life. Cause Apple still is sort of like locked on the same amount of battery life that they think is appropriate, but people, you know, everybody would like more battery life on their iPhone. I would say uh, more resistant to drops would be on my list, you know, keep improving the materials so that if I drop my phone, because people drop their phones, it doesn't shatter. And then um, visibility and bright light is the other thing, like making it making it so I could read a book out in bright sunlight without, you know, which which is sometimes quite problematic, even with even with the iPhone, and that's one of the reasons why I have a Kindle. Is uh, Kindles are really good at dealing with bright light, and iPhones and iPads are not. So the, I would put those all on my list. So yeah, the fact that this this screen is imperceptibly upgraded, it's it, it, it's that's a good thing. It's a it's a start. If it if it saves a few thousand people from having their phones break, then uh, then that's good, and they keep need to keep doing more. The aluminum on the back. Um, it, I think the idea here is that that the whole bend story a year ago that oh you could bend your iPhone um, that aluminum back shell was a little softer and this one is is more rigid and so it, it's going to be more impervious to to bending and to and and can resist force a lot a lot better. I've heard some people say that they feel that the grip on the aluminum backplate is better that the that the, there's more of a texture than than on the on the six. I can't verify that because I've held many different success models at yeah. this point, and a few of them feel more grippy, but also a bunch of them don't. So I think maybe there's individual variation uh, that's part of the anodization process when they anodize the aluminum and add the colors and 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 make the aluminum uh, you know tough so it can withstand the torment that we that we inflict on our iPhones. Um, maybe, and I asked Apple about it, and their response was basically that. 
there's nothing there, uh, you know, and 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 so yeah. they, they gave me a non-response that was very clearly like, if this was an improvement, we'd talk about it, and we're not talking about it. So I, I think maybe it's a manufacturing quirk, and it, you know, and maybe some models are more grippy and have more of a texture, but I wouldn't count on it. I wouldn't count on getting one, and I don't think you could take it back to the Apple Store if you and you said I was hoping it would be less slippery because I heard they're not going to replace it because it's not a feature. Um, even though some of them may be perhaps accidentally uh, more grippy, it may also just be an effect of the early production process of the iPhones that oh. as as they started the anodization, you know, and then they tweaked it, maybe some of the initial ones had a little more texture than some of the later ones. I don't know, but I can't I cannot confirm. It's certainly not across the board. Um, and so I, I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't count on it. I, I other thing we should mention is yeah. there are a lot of reports out there that and this is another feature, you talk about features Apple's not talking about, physical features, that if you were to, say, drop your iPhone in the toilet. Oh, yes. It seems like, although Apple's not saying anything about it, it seems like there is more water resistance on these models, that pe- some people have submerged them for as long as 20 minutes, and they keep working. Um, and eventually, they seem to they see the water seems to infuse the the phone, but we don't I, recommend I, this. We don't recommend do, trying do, this. Do not recommend this. But <laughs> what I would say is, were to I wonder. To yeah, I wonder if in the next year, what we're going to hear is a lot of stories from people who say, "Oh yeah, I dropped my iPhone in the toilet. I dropped my iPhone in the in a puddle. I immediately pulled it out, and it still works." That gets and the cuss sat numbers. That those cuss sat numbers go way yeah. up when you take yes. your watch. You, you don't even know you've done it before. You pull it out of the toilet. You wipe it off, and it works. You are ecstatic because you weren't promised it was waterproof or water resistant, rather. Exactly. So I think I think that that's what's going on is that Apple's made an effort to make them more survivable in terms of uh, a, a quick dunk in something. Yeah, but don't try it. But I'm I'm encouraged by these tests that it looks like one in one of the take aparts that they've you know they've added some. Uh, gaskets and stuff around some of the some of the uh, parts of the of the phone so that they're a little more resistant to water intrusion and that's just that's good that's that's a good thing again I hope none of us drops our um, our iPhones in a bucket of water but <laughs> it, it, it it could happen accidentally and uh, just fish it out immediately and maybe you'll be you'll be okay if it's a- apparently the putting it in a, a rice is kind of a myth. People have tested it. That used to be the thing. If your iPhone gets wet, immediately throw it in uncooked rice and let it there because it'll leach it out. I thought this was absolutely true. And I had a friend say, no, you're just, you're completely wrong. I start to research this because I, you know, I was like, well, I've heard this from so many people. There are all kinds of positions from reputable sites and people who've tested it thoroughly, who do a lot of testing. It may help. But it's really unclear. So it's not ah, the thing. So the silica stuff, I mean, you don't want to throw it in a pile of that silica gel, but there's still right, other, te- other The desiccant techniques. stuff that you'll yeah. find sometimes in things and marked as do not eat. Yeah, it's uh, delicious. That's why they market that way. No, <laughs> <laughs> um, now, I've had, you recommended at some point ago, I think when the iPhone 6 and 6S came out, or 6 Plus came out, uh, you recommended the leather case. And I was nervous. I got a new bigger phone, my hands, I'm like, I'm going to slip it. I bought the leather case and I love it. Side effect is I'm a year in with the phone and I'm looking at it for to see the resale value. If I decide to buy out the remainder from my AT&T installment and sell it, my phone is impeccable. I have no scratches or it does actually meet that new yeah. I mean, if I clean it up with the cloth a bit, it is essentially looks like an entirely new phone. And uh that's one of those trade-offs. Like I have been caseless for most of the time and then I got a case for 
I forget, one of the 5 or 5S for a bit. And then, of course, I dropped one of my phones, but I had Apple Care Plus. So like, uh, they, there were other problems, so they repaired it for me. Um, so this is an issue, I think, uh, for folks, like whether to be a case or not. And um, if you're going to turn your phone over, when you return your phone – that's why I'm thinking about it with the donkey in the water too. When you uh, turn in your phone, it has to meet standards that the uh, companies have and the cell companies will have their own standards and Apple may be more lenient. Uh, I just heard a thing. Uh, I'm trying to remember where I heard this just the other day. You know, what happens to all these phones that are turned in? Do they get refurbed? And uh, one speculation is they just get completely torn apart for parts because yeah. these are great sources of parts, but the actual you know wear and tear, I'm sure they go into some subsidiary markets as well. Um, some yeah. must because there's too much of a of a thing there. But so you got to keep your phone in better shape if you're going to do an installment plan. So a case may be a better option. So thank you yeah. for recommending that case. That's a, a nice case. Uh, one last thing I want to talk about was availability because uh, we're not going to get into uh, we don't, we're not Gene Monster. We don't stand outside of Apple stores and count who comes in and out. And thank <sighs> God he did. thank God that man does it and other people. Uh, you know, so the reports came out. Apple released this number and there were some predictions by some morons a couple weeks ago that Apple would have a terrible opening weekend. Instead, it sold more phones. Uh, than it ever had before in an opening weekend, but it also included more markets. It was able to execute and sell in more countries at once. Uh, and this, uh, many folks think, is uh, proof that Apple has finally kind of gotten over the demand hump, that it's not running uh -huh. out, you know, and it can still meet these demands uh, for opening weekends. I was just looking into the Apple iPhone upgrade plan. If you do that, you must do it in a store so you can make the arrangement and reserve it online. And I could see, I went and looked at the stores around me. I'm in, you know, greater Seattle. There's four or five stores in my region, four stores. And uh, there wasn't, every phone wasn't available in every finish or capability. There were plenty of phones available though. I mean, I, I don't know if there, you know, you don't know if there's one or more of any model, but I saw a large display of lots of different uh, phones of the kinds I wanted around. So clearly um, this seems to be a unique case in which they were able to, to meet a lot of the demand in the opening weekend. Yeah. We've always said that Apple's sort of opening sales are constrained by demand. And I think that are constrained by, by manufacturer and not by demand. And I think that's still true. Uh, but what they are, they have ramped up their supply and, and you can see it because something to keep in mind when you see, oh, there were record iPhone sales for the first weekend is they were in China the first weekend and they haven't been before. And so, of course, there were more sales because they were in China. Yeah, exactly. The Chinese market came week, <laughs> week one instead of week four. And, and last, last year, the, they hit China in October. So, um, but what that does say is that Apple can make so many that they could open it in China yeah. because that's what they do is they, the reason Apple does these uh, rollouts from country to country is not because Apple likes teasing people in Italy. It's because Apple can't make enough to fulfill all the, all the demand in all the markets. So they make enough to fit that, fill the first week in demand spike here and then it cools off and then they can fulfill another demand spike in yeah. other countries and then it cools off because they've only got they can only make so many and they've got only so many stockpiled. So by adding China to launch weekend that says one how important China is as a market to Apple but it also says Apple was capable of fulfilling demand in China at the same time as all these other countries that they launched. And that that's that goes to Apple having uh, way better production than than they maybe have in the past. And, you know, the, the, it's funny. It's like building a, a website and you always want to be, like, uh, able to handle peak, the, your peak demand, but you never really know what peak demand is. And if your peak demand is way bigger than you, you anticipated, then in that moment your site will die because you 
didn't anticipate it properly. Well, this is Apple's story too. Is Apple struggles to continue? I mean, iPhone is increasingly popular, so Apple can't just get better; they have to get a lot better. And and most of their products are constrained by manufacturing because their products people want to buy them, and they continue to struggle to uh, to make enough. I mean, that's a good place to be as a company. Yeah. Is unless people are going to turn away from you and buy it from someone else, but I think most of Apple's customers don't want to buy something from someone else. They want it from Apple, um, and you don't want to have a bunch of uh, products sitting around. And so this was the story with the Apple Watch in the early days too. It's the same thing. It's like they couldn't make them fast enough, and I think that was a problem, and they maybe <laughs> lost some sales because of yeah, it. But it's a failure but, because they couldn't make enough to sell to people. You see, yeah, let me explain right. how this works. Yeah, although I think I think they ultimately, I mean, I, I have some suspicions that Apple Watch inventory that they have a, a lot of those now. <laughs> I think um, I would and, agree. Well, I bought I bought one for my wife for her birthday, and uh, it came in the box, and it was beautiful. And we opened it up; it's a stainless steel uh, thirty eight, and uh, it was dead. We had to charge it, oh. and that says to me that it sat in that box for a long time, oh. uh, which su- suggests to me that they have they have some that they had a lot of inventory of and and weren't selling. But that's a story for another. Other time. Anyway, the point is, uh, they've gotten way better at manufacturing new iPhones and building them up so that they can fulfill demand. Um, and there's still a lot of demand, but always watch the number of countries they roll out in because yeah. that will give you some idea of the confidence they have in being able to meet demand. Well, if it's U.S. only, they don't have very many of them, so they've got a limit to, to the U.S. And this also doesn't uh, argues to the like the TikTok thing where like this it's the same form factor, but the glass was different, the aluminum was different, the camera was different, yeah. the haptic sensor was different, the chip was different. Like every, I mean. I don't know if everything inside the, th- the phone was different. I'm sure some components were identical, but really this was a different phone in yeah. everything but shape. It just, it just looks the same, but it is yeah. not the same. And you can't, so they couldn't a- reuse any of the external parts and probably not very many of the internal parts. Yeah. I mean, it's got it's got 802.11ac, which the previous one didn't either. So even the Wi-Fi chip and the cellular, ch- cellular chip supports different bands. So uh, yeah, it's a funny thing. So this is essentially it's like a it's like a chameleon. It's or not a chameleon. It's like a, a mimic. It's it looks exactly like the thing, and it's ninety uh, percent different. Right. So they don't even get the advantage of anything. But I mean, the aluminum maybe it's the same process, but it's not the same material. So no. they can't stockpile a bunch of them. I think also, and just to, I mean, we're going on long here, but just to close out too is they're selling the five S, the six, the six plus. The 6S, the 6S Plus, those, that's a, those are a great range of phones. A lot of people still like yep. the 5S form factor, and the 5S is a great phone. It was one of my favorite iPhone models ever, um, and yeah. it's got Touch ID, and it's 64-bit, and, you know, they, it's it's a great phone. Like, I wouldn't tell people – I would tell people to get the 64-gig version of it, if at all possible. Yeah. Um, Wait, are they still selling? That's even I can't see. That's where we get into that. Like, I, I don't. I don't even know. Yeah. Uh, what are they? I don't even know what they're selling because they will sell you that in uh, 16 gigs and 32 gigs. I'm sorry. So 32 gig is fine. Yeah. And all the other phones, I'm saying 64 because that's the next step up. Um, that you should get. But uh, yeah. So Apple, I feel like they are executing very, very well, which of course means they're they're doomed, Jason. Yes, of course. It's been great, great knowing them. Yeah. Uh, nice well, th- thank you, folks, for joining us for this podcast. And thank you, Jason Snell, the proprietor of Six Colors, which you can find at the surprisingly named sixcolors.com. Dot com. Yeah. A fantastic new design, fantastic new logo, and t shirt to come, I hear. I hope so. At some point. A very nice t shirt to come. And uh, you can read Jason's uh, reviews of El Capitan out today and uh, out yesterday, rather, and uh, his iPhone reviews from earlier in the week. And we'll have links in the show notes. And you can find it at macworld.com. I've been and remain 
senior contributor to Macworld, Glenn Fleischman, and uh, our sponsor this week was Red Hat. We thank this has been the Macworld podcast number 476 for September 30th, 2015. Thanks for joining us, and we'll be back next week.